Can I say something just before we get started? Sure. Black Lives Matter. Yes. Welcome to episode 5 of the Community Renewables podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag, and I'm here with energy transition chronicler Craig Morris. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking about the elephant in the room. Lots of people say Germany's energy transition is too expensive. So I went back to the Renewable Energy Act of 2000 to see what it said its goals are. And here's a direct quote. The purpose of this act is to facilitate a sustainable development of energy supply in the interest of managing global warming and protecting the environment. And to achieve a substantial increase in the percentage contribution made by renewable energy sources. End of quote. There is no mention of cost at all. But then the law is amended in 2004 and a passage is added about reducing the macroeconomic costs of energy supply, including long-term external effects. So it seems that cheap energy was not a goal. Saving the planet was. Right. Um, macroeconomic means energy prices might not be as low as possible, but there are savings elsewhere, such as through smaller environmental and climate impacts. And we don't find an emphasis on lowering costs until Germany's National Action Plan of 2010, which starts talking about affordability. So in this episode, we will investigate the cost debate over renewables in Germany. In the last episode, we learned that community energy might not always be the cheapest, but it has other macroeconomic benefits, especially for rural areas. Germany has the second highest retail power rates in the EU at around 30 cents, just behind Denmark. Yes, but German household power bills come in at only around 80 euros a month, which is not exceptional in an international comparison. So Germans have reacted to higher power prices by conserving electricity. And there may be some willingness to pay more for a perceived quality. You may remember Stefan Bayerle from episode 3. He operates a district heat network with renewable heat in rural Bavaria. And Craig asked him whether any wind or solar projects had been built in the past few years. And here's what he said. For wind, not many. At least not community projects. You had some bigger firms that offered people shares, but they also paid their top people high salaries and charged a lot for maintenance. So the profits go to top management, to people sitting in the north, in Sweden and Poland. In other words, corporations may provide cheaper electricity, but locals may still resent high CEO pay. People might be willing to pay more for a power supply they like better. And for Germany, we should keep in mind that the whole cost discussion concerns legacy costs for solar. Germany built lots of solar when it was 10 times more expensive than today. 
We will finish paying for that around 2030. But adding new solar and wind now is often the least expensive option. Is it all about the money? Let's find out. Our first guest is Justus Haukap. He is a professor of economics focusing on competition and antitrust at the University of Düsseldorf. And he chaired the German Monopoly Commission from 2008 until 2012, which were the years when the cost debate exploded. At that time, he was one of the public critics of the German EEG. And now we will hear why. So what do we need to know first? He mentions the EU ETS, and ETS stands for Emissions Trading Scheme, a market instrument to incentivize the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. The EU sets a cap on how much carbon can be emitted per year. And for each emitted ton, you need a certificate, that's a sort of permit, which then can be traded. So the market sets the price for carbon emissions And the price fluctuates, unlike with a carbon tax, for example, which is generally stable. Um, I guess we could do an entire episode or even a whole podcast on emissions trading and carbon taxes, but we will leave it for now. Let's listen to our first guest, Justus Haukap. You are known within the energy transition debate here in Germany for saying that what Germany has done has been too expensive. What are the main things you criticize? From an economic perspective, we have to start with the fact that there is a limited amount of money. From my perspective, and I think I speak here for a lot of economists, the goal should be to reduce carbon emissions as much as possible with the money we spend. I don't think we're doing that. Germany's EEG and the European Emissions Trading Scheme are not connected. And for a long time, the EEG was quite generous in Germany. We knew we were paying too much and didn't do anything about it. Back around 2012, when this debate really heated up, you called for a system of quotas. Can you briefly describe what that is? Yes, you could also speak of certificates. The idea is roughly that anyone who wants to sell electricity, in other words, the power providers, should be required to have a constantly increasing share of renewables. You could raise the percentage each year, for instance. But the companies could decide on their own how they want to provide this green electricity. They could say they want to build a new system themselves, or they could pay people to put solar on their roofs or in fields. And people who wanted to build renewables themselves would do so and sell the green certificates to the power providers. So you would lock in demand by imposing a quota on the percentage of green electricity that power firms have to provide. Mm -hmm. They would demonstrate that they have met the quota by submitting these certificates. But they would still be able to decide how they get enough certificates. There would be an entire portfolio of contract types. Not just one stipulating 20 years of fixed prices and nothing else is allowed. 
Do you still call for this policy? I still think it would be better, but improvements have been made. We have auctions for wind and solar power. That has improved things a lot. But I still think auctions are second best. Behind green certificates? Behind green certificates. Because in auctions, you still have to write so much into the contracts. What size, what technology. It leaves very little space for entrepreneurial activity. Businesses can't say, I'll make my own green energy and sell certificates. Or I'll have some short-term and some long-term contracts. Or you could have an upfront investment bonus along with a feed-in tariff. All kinds of combinations are possible with green certificates. This kind of inventiveness comes about when you have competition. People begin to realize, okay, this kind of contract works better than some other kind. But you can't do that with auctions because the contract type is clear from the outset. In auctions, you can't say, everybody go experiment, because we don't know what the cheapest solution will be. But the actual problem with auctions is that so little wind power is being built. The question is what demand level you set. The state sets that level by deciding how much will be auctioned off. That's a purely political decision. So the question is how much the state wants to have. I think you're saying that the state could auction off more, but I'm talking about some eight or nine rounds of auctions in which there were not even enough bids for the amount on auction. That might have to do with the other things that have been changed during those years. Longer minimum distances, uncertainties, and so on. So developers are having a hard time finding suitable sites. It's hard to say what the world would look like if we had kept feed-in tariffs but added longer distance rules. Such changes have no logical connection with the switch to auctions. You mentioned competition. One thing I never understood was that feed-in tariffs led to much greater diversity among market players. But I always heard the Monopoly Commission criticize feed-in tariffs about prices. There was never any praise for greater competition. Am I wrong in expecting a Monopoly Commission to praise a policy that creates more diversity and competition? Diversity is good. That's correct in principle. But competition is not a goal in itself from the viewpoint of the competition authorities. It has to be good for consumers. If consumers don't benefit, it's not like in football where we can say it's still fun to watch. Consumers have to benefit. If we said in any market, a lot of people should make a lot of money, consumers still have to pay for it. There would be a lot of diversity, but consumers wouldn't benefit. Consumers tend to want to pay less, and they want to have choice.
And we didn't have more competition with feed-in tariffs. It's not like one solar power producer was competing with another, or with wind power. And around 2010, you were really able to earn a fortune, especially from solar power. Somebody has to pay the bill. In the end, it's a mixture of taxpayers, consumers, and the industry. And the industry is just going to pass the costs on. So citizens have to pay in the end. There isn't anyone else. This podcast is about citizens, of course, or more specifically, about community energy, as called for in the EU's Renewable Energy Directive of 2018. Is this aspect important for you personally? I think it's a great opportunity. In general, cooperatives are a great opportunity. When people take ownership, they're often also more excited about the project. Auctions haven't made this any easier, though some attempts were made to accommodate community projects. But I am convinced that green certificates would have made things easier for community projects. Because you could take action. You wouldn't have had to submit bids in a prefabricated auction system. People could have said, we're going to build our own project, and we will sell their certificates to whomever we want. So I'm not convinced that auctions are good for community projects. What kind of energy and climate policy would you like to see going forward? I agree with a lot of economists who say that carbon price is crucial. Ideally, one for all sectors, so we can get sector coupling done. The climate doesn't care whether carbon is emitted from buildings, mobility or electricity. A unified carbon price would mean that money would finally be invested where the most emissions could be reduced. I think that's why we need to move beyond our narrow focus on the power sector, but not add a narrow focus on buildings or a narrow focus on mobility. We need to see the big picture. Anything you would like to add? I would like to add that the EEG played some role in helping make some technologies cheap, especially solar. But I think proponents of the EEG overestimate the role that Germany played, especially since 2009. Global market demand since 2009 was largely outside Germany. It was in places like China and California. But that was 10 years ago, and I think we can still do a lot of good for the future. I agree with him on his final point. We need a unified carbon price and we need to see the big picture and not view things sector by sector. For community energy projects, this is perfect. We should promote such things as district heating and shared mobility. And just to be clear about what unified means for carbon price. Up to now, the EU's emission trading scheme, the ETS, has only included power stations and energy-intensive industries 
covering around 45% of EU's greenhouse gas emissions. For instance, it does not cover mobility, such as cars and planes, and it doesn't cover a lot of the heat sector. And Craig, I liked how you asked, do you still call for this policy, implying that we can change our opinions? You know, this is not something I have seen happening much in current politics, and I'm really missing brave politicians who admit their mistakes, and also a society that will accept such admissions. Well, I'd like to come back to what he said. Uh, I mean, there's a direct quote, I think. Competition is not a goal in itself. It has to be good for consumers. This is not how monopoly experts have always thought. If you go back 100 years, so around 1920, monopoly law was about protecting democracy from big business. And in the 1930s, it literally started being about defending democracy from fascism. Antitrust laws, so that's what we call like monopoly laws in the states. Antitrust laws protected workers and small business owners, not just consumers. So it protected citizens. So I think we first of all need to define exactly what we mean by fascism. So Rebecca, just off the top of your head, what comes to mind when you hear the word fascism? Mm, I would say it's a political system that forbids freedom and thinking and f also freedom and acting. That sounds accurate, but I mean, that could be any dictatorship, right? I mean, probably a lot of people would think of war and concentration camps and the Holocaust, but fascism started in Italy. And if we look at what Italian and German fascism had in common, the definition becomes clear. It's collusion between a big central government and big business. And that's what competition law, antitrust law, in the United States originally tried to prevent 100 years ago. They didn't want big U.S. firms working too closely with Washington. But then... All of this began to change in the 1970s when people like Robert Bork and others from the Chicago School of Economics started saying monopolies were okay as long as consumers benefited. Now, there's a whole movement about this, actually, in legal circles um, to take antitrust law back to the Brandeis ideas. Louis Brandeis, um, who later became a Supreme Court justice, He asked in 1912, and this is also a direct quote, what does democracy involve? Not merely political and religious liberty, but industrial liberty also. Which is, for community renewables today, the right to make your own energy. Right. And here's another quote from the debate, and we'll put all the sources in the show notes. The undue focus on consumer welfare is misguided. It betrays legislative history, which reveals that Congress passed antitrust laws to promote a host of political economic ends, including our interests as workers, producers, entrepreneurs, and citizens. So this is what some of the legal experts are saying in the U.S. Now, Halkop is stating current mainstream thought, but we don't have to agree that monopolies are fine as long as consumers benefit. 
we can demand to be called citizens, not just consumers, and demand rights as workers and small business owners. But Halkop is right that people often want to pay less, so we have to make it clear that low prices come at a cost. The standard of living for workers, environmental and climate impacts, and so forth. Um, I mean, for this podcast, uh, very specifically, people want cheap electricity, but the folks installing solar on your roof should earn a good living, and that can make solar more expensive. Haukap's support for quotas seems to focus on freedom to design contracts. That's a bit different than the reason Paul van Zorn gave, which was economic efficiency. And at first glance, more flexible options such as an upfront investment bonus along with a feed and tariff, as he said, sounds quite reasonable to me. So is there any example where green certificates worked for community energy? I don't know of any. And in the last episode, David Toke said the ones in the UK had been good for big firms, not community projects. Yeah, and, and Haukap also says community energy would have benefited from green certificates. And I wonder about that because, I mean, in green certificates, you have uncertain future prices, right? And he also talks about short-term and long-term deals. I mean, that sounds like the opposite of de-risking and bankability, all that stuff we talked about in previous episodes. And to come back to the freedom of contracts, I mean, what community energy group is asking for more freedom to negotiate contracts? I mean, isn't the that freedom the kind of voluntary agreements we had in the 1980s? I mean, you remember Heinrich Bartelt from episode two, trying to get his big power provider to pay him properly for his wind power? I mean, think about it. How can David and Goliath freely negotiate contracts? But Haukap seems to be a fan of community energy. He even says cooperatives are a great opportunity. Yeah, it reminds me of what uh, Andreas Wieg says. Uh, he'll be on a, a later episode of this podcast um, and he works for the DGRV, which is the umbrella organization for cooperatives in Germany. And he once told me, I don't like the term community energy because no one is against it. So everyone tells you they love what you're doing, and then you tell them what you need, you ask for something, and they say, whoa, wait a minute, no. But I'd like to end on a note of agreement. Um, Haukap questions whether we would have greater acceptance if we had kept feed-in tariffs in Germany for onshore wind power. And he's right, we can't know that. That's revisionist history, so it's just conjecture. But most proponents of community energy here would argue that community groups used to fight for renewables on the ground, and they had the clout to do so as community members. These groups are now gone, so no one is fighting for renewables at the local level anymore in Germany. We're coming to our next guest now, and he throws a bit of a wrench into the discussion. And it's none other than Professor Lorenz Jaras. 
you may remember that we quoted jokes from his website in the first few episodes. And besides publishing jokes on his website, he is a retired economics professor and advisor to the European Commission, the European Parliament and the German Bundestag. So Halkop says that green certificates would create a market for renewable power that Germany doesn't have on the power exchange. But it turns out that Germany used to have an indirect market for green electricity, and it was done away with in 2011, ironically right about the time that Haukap was calling for a policy change. At the retail level, households and small businesses can buy 100% green electricity, but there is no green power label on the national power exchange. So here's Lorenz Jaras explaining how the old system worked. Up to 2010, every power provider had to purchase whatever percentage of renewable power was currently being generated in addition to their standing contracts. In other words, if there was 30% green power on the grid at the time, the power firms had to deliver exactly 30% green power to their customers. If they were not generating that much themselves, they topped up from the power exchange. The power providers had to physically deliver that percentage of green power. It wasn't just some virtual transaction that accountants took care of. They had to buy this green power on the exchange. Okay, this is pretty abstract, so I asked him to give me an example, and he mentioned a coal plant run by the municipal utility of Wiesbaden. Up to 2010, this utility had to ramp down its coal plant and purchase green electricity. If they only had coal power and needed to deliver 30% green electricity, because that's what was on the German grid that hour, they had to ramp down their coal plant and buy 30% renewable electricity from the exchange. But starting in 2010, they no longer had to. The municipal utility of Wiesbaden could keep its coal plant running. And Professor Yara says that this new policy, this change, made renewables look expensive. And this is what we have today. So because so much fossil and nuclear power stays on the grid, prices on the spot market drop, and so renewables sort of looked much more expensive in comparison. There is no sale of renewable power on the exchange. The only thing sold there is electricity. So renewable power is degraded because it can only be sold as basic electricity. So we need to set up an exchange for renewable power. Up to 2010, we had that indirectly. We implicitly had a price for renewable power on the exchange. So basically, the old system allowed renewables to force fossil and nuclear off the grid. Right, and this step has weakened what's called priority for renewables on the grid, meaning that you would ramp down or curtail fossil and nuclear before you curtail renewables. 
the EU has uh, now also adopted guidelines saying that all renewable energy systems larger than 400 kilowatts can be curtailed, and that threshold drops to 200 kilowatts in 2026. We'll put a link to that law in the show notes. There's someone else I wanted to hear from about the cost issue, Uwe Nestle. As an independent consultant, he has written extensively about this topic. Yeah, I asked him what he thought about the call for an end to feed-in tariffs back around 2010. And he brought up the old point of criticism that people who work at cash registers in grocery stores were paying for investments in renewables that rich dentists made. It had to do with this claim that there was no risk involved with feed-in tariffs. That's not correct. The only thing guaranteed in feed-in tariffs is the payment per kilowatt hour of electricity you generate. But there was no certainty about how much power you would generate and how high your maintenance costs would be. So feed-in tariffs were never a risk-free investment for rich people to rake in the cash. It was simply a new investment option along with all of the others. Smart people with savings have always found ways to invest money and get a good return. But the people who invested were always those with savings, not those working at cash registers. We are thus not talking about a problem with feed-in tariffs, but simply about the structure of market economies. So you can't really criticize feed-in tariffs for making rich people richer. The weird thing, of course, is that Germany built a lot of solar when it was expensive, and now we've slowed down now that it's cheap. So I asked Uwe what he thought. It's completely absurd. It's never been clearer that we need fast climate action. It's never been more important to build renewables quickly. And renewables were never cheaper. Auctions were introduced specifically to slow down new projects and limit the amount added. That makes no sense. We have to move quickly, and renewables have never been cheaper. But of course, it's true that the poor pay for renewables in Germany while the rich invest. So I asked him what he thought about this redistribution problem. I don't think the discussion should focus on that. You redistribute with social and economic policy, not climate and energy policy. But energy and climate policy must not worsen conditions for the poor. And we mustn't forget that the worst thing for the poor would be no climate action at all. The poor are the ones who sit in retirement homes without air conditioning. And when Germany heats up, it will get tough there. The poor live on streets with heavy traffic. And the poor cannot afford to protect themselves from climate change like the rich can. In other words, we should use social policy and not energy policy to protect the poor. 
For instance, in Germany, welfare payments cover the heating bill, not the electricity bill. So Germany could have protected this group, at least by simply adding the power bill or part of it to welfare payments. Yeah, let's, let's also come back to what Halkop says about China. He questions whether Germany really played such a big role in kickstarting the global market since 2009. There was something like a 90% drop in the price of solar panels from like 2009 to 2014. And that was during the sort of heyday of feed-in tariffs. And China's one example that Haukap gives of a market that really made a difference globally for solar. And so I called up Shuwei uh, Zhang. He's a consultant at, at the Draw World Research Center based in China to see what policy the Chinese had used up to their record solar year of 2017. Seven years ago, China adopted the so-called feed-in tariff. It's, it's just like give you a fixed price across a whole lifetime. That's uh, typically 20 years, yeah. Shu Wei goes on to explain the details. And the Chinese feed and tariffs sound very much like the German ones. They do indeed. But since 2017, the market has shrunk, partly because feed and tariffs have been limited as the government switches to auctions. And the goal that Zhang mentions is interesting. More and more, they, they, they want to, to constrain the, the development pace. That's to say every year they give a camp. So the Chinese are switching to auctions to slow down the growth of solar. Which was exactly the effect of auctions on both wind and solar in Germany. So if slowing down the energy transition is your goal, auctions might interest you. Feed-in tariffs can go really fast. What about California, the other place Haukup mentions? Well, the U.S. has never rolled out feed-in tariffs as the main policy instrument, but California was a latecomer to solar anyway. I mean, the state didn't surpass Germany for solar until 2014, by which time solar prices were no longer plummeting but just falling steadily. And so I think China's a better example of a country that ramped up new installations when the prices were dropping. Um, but I think Haukap and I are actually saying two different things. He's saying that Germany's role in bringing down the cost of solar is overstated. And I'm saying that feed-in tariffs did the heavy lifting worldwide from Germany to China. Germany made up around 50% of the global solar market in the mid-2000s. And China made up half or more for many years sort of afterwards. And all of this was done with feed-in tariffs. And when the UK took the lead in the EU as the biggest solar market in 2014 and 2015, they also did it with feed-in tariffs. In other words, in the decade from 2005 to 2015, when the price of solar plummeted by around 90%, feed-in tariffs were behind around 90% of the global market. We want to close this episode with Jakob Schland. He plays an active part in the public cost debate as a journalist. He is the head of Tagesspiegel Background Energie und Klima, which is the energy and climate department of a daily newspaper in Berlin. 
And he also comments on whether Germany kickstarted solar worldwide. And you seemed a bit surprised at his response, Craig. Yes, in fact, I didn't even expect to talk to him about this. Uh, but his statement complements what Halkop said nicely. So let's listen in. So if I were to describe you, and this is kind of where you can comment on this, I would say that you uh, are very, uh, you know, behind the energy transition, very concerned about climate change, but yeah, you also, true. but you also complain about the price tag. Is that a correct description? Yeah, that's a very correct description. I would also say that uh, the problem is not nearly as big as it used to be. Those were solar debts, it was called back mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And the nature of debts is that you repay them over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. In the case of the EEG, you repay them in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And we were piling up a lot of that debt. Right. We are not piling up a lot of debt anymore, but we're still paying it back. Right. So we're still paying for those, let's call them mistakes. It's a little bit, you know, it's a, it's a generalization, but let's call them mistake for, mistakes for the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, we're still paying them back, so we're still feeling uh, the pain, if you like, of, mm. of, of miscalculations. But on the other hand, um, uh, we are not adding a lot of debt at the moment, and that's why it's really futile uh, to use this debt as an argument for the current debate and decisions. Mm -hmm. yeah. The psychology, I just wanted to explain the psychology behind it. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, Adding additional capacity is basically for free. It really, it is. I mean, free? The, okay. the, I, I wouldn't go that far, but you, you, you be you. <laughs> I, I'm, I was specifically saying capacity. Of course, the big price tag now is system cost. I mean, if you look at, for example, um, solar auctions, um, the lowest was 4.5 cent per kilowatt hour. Around that, it's gone. It's gone up a bit now. But actually, it's not gone up because the technology is more expensive. It's gone up because um, it's it's not that easy to uh, to uh, to find sites for it, even for solar now. That's, that's one of the reasons. So I, I would say, yeah, I mean, the, the kilowatt hour is basically for free. You have mm -hmm. to balance it. That's the cost. Okay. So I'd like to get back to the cost-impact discussion. So it's the legacy costs of solar that are the problem. I think that's generally agreed. And probably something should have been done back then, but we can't uh, undo the, you know, the the amount that was built at the high cost um, at the time. Um, so we have this. Oh, uh, my, our, our the minister, the economics minister, tried that once. He opened that discussion, mm -hmm. and people from Goldman Sachs in London called him immediately and said, "You're crazy. We're not going to invest in Germany anymore." Mm -hmm. The fallout cost of not fulfilling such an obligation for a country like Germany is enormous. What I've always found a bit disingenuous about this argument is in the 10 years from 2009 to 2018, I lived in Freiburg in a high rise surrounded by uh, people who made little money and probably a lot of them, you know, like 25% uh, received uh, social welfare. Yeah. And and do you know how many times in the, in those ten years um, I talked with any of my neighbors about their um, power bills? This is during the years when the the power rates were exploding. Any idea? I mean, this is anecdotal, not data, right? But yeah, just... I mean, uh, your 
you're you're uh, you're coming in from a direction where I would say it's zero. Right. What do you say to that? The Germans don't know what they pay for power. That's the long and short of it. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Uh, d- did you have any people from your you know circle of friends and acquaintances and neighbors complaining about the rising cost of electricity? Yeah, I would say mm-hmm. I would say that a few years back, um, when when the when power prices in Germany really surged, there was a little bit of a discussion. It's not a good yardstick for public policy in general to look at people's reaction on the street. I, I think it's, you know, responsible governance in many fields. You know, people don't really understand. I mean, we have the corona crisis at the moment, so this example pops up with me. They don't really understand the machinations between are there enough hospital beds or not. Mm-hmm. They can't. Mm-hmm. They just want to to have a situation where there is a hospital bed for them. But but still, it has an, an, an enormous effect. It has a redistribution effect across the whole population, like any other social policy, if you like. Well, but like and, any other investment, this is the thing that I think is a bit just disingenuous about the argument. Uh, not that you're making, but that is just out there, right? Um, it's a bit disingenuous because there is a redistribution with all kinds of investments. Um, and I, so I don't really, in a way, we opened up the energy sector to new investors, to new players, to new businesses. But if you had a few thousand in the bank and you didn't want to put it on the stock market, you could invest it in some local renewable energy project. If this was So this was not just redistribution, like more redistribution than we already had. This was opening up an, a, a previously closed off energy sector to more investors. You still have a redistributional effect. I mean, always when you have investment opportunities, no matter if they're green or good or bad or mm-hmm. evil, whatever, you always have the situation that 50%, roughly 50% of the population have no savings at all. Would you agree with the uh, statement that I would make that a lot of the complaining um, about the price impact came from um, people actually talking about, I mean, they usually represented the business sector in some form or another, but then they suddenly found their bleeding heart for poor families. Um, So would you say that there was a bit of dishonesty might be going a little bit too far? They, sh- they should have been g- genuinely representing mid-sized businesses who were detrimentally affected and, and remain detrimentally affected. I would also say it's relatively normal in, in a society and in any form of lobbying mm. that you are looking for arguments that support your position even if you don't really share the concerns of the group you're instrumentalizing. Is that an English word? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, we'll use it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So me as a journalist, I never bought into that argument, and I would never have argued in this way myself. That's my job. But I'm also, you know, it's not a conspiracy that they did that. It's kind of, that's the way it works, right? If you're, if you're, yeah. looking, if yeah. you're working towards a goal where you have a self-interest, uh, then you're looking for arguments from other groups why this, what you would like to reach, is a good idea. You're spot on, but it doesn't really worry me that much, to be honest. 
Okay. Everything okay. has to be judged on its own merit. The important thing is, uh, would it have been a good idea? What policy is good? The important thing is, is it a valid argument or not? Anything else we should talk about before we sign off? You didn't bring bring up the main argument against my position. Okay. Which is that we financed the global learning curve. And that's so important that, you know, everything was worth it. And even though we pay too much per kilowatt hour, uh, it was still a huge boost and the payback um, for humanity, if you like, will be enormous. You agree with that? Actually, I do. And actually, I changed my okay. mind about it a little bit. I think it's really the single best argument. And yeah. I also looked into production numbers. I was always skeptical. You know, a boom and bust is never good for an industry. Actually, mm. if you look at global installation numbers, they're surprisingly smooth. And Germany was a huge initial boost for those global um, um, installation numbers because the Chinese basically installed the, the production capacity. Once that was in place, they were kind of locked in. And for global right. solar development, there's no question about it that it was massive. What about conservation? It doesn't seem too prominent in the debate. I mean, if everyone consumed as much as we Germans do, we would need three planets. Conservation has the nice side effect of also reducing our bills. Prices go up and we just consume less. And all this talk about the cost of renewables leaves me with the impression that the transition is a costly endeavor. So I had a look at the numbers for household expenses. The latest figures for an average private household in Germany are from 2016. Do you know these numbers, Craig? I've seen them, but I can't remember by heart. Okay, well then you have to guess. How much do Germans spend on hotels and restaurants compared to electricity? Well, the, the average German power bill is around 80 euros a month. Um... So I suppose if you go out to eat once every two weeks with the whole family, that'll pretty much eat up 80 euros. And if you spend just one night a month in a hotel, you could easily double that. Actually, it is almost double. Electricity accounts for 3% of our total expenditure. Hotels and restaurants account for 5%. And what about alcoholic beverages and tobacco? Huh. How many beers can you get for 80 euros? Maybe 20 in a bar? And cigarettes are expensive for those who still smoke. So I expect Germans probably spend more on alcohol and tobacco than on electricity. Exactly. It's 4%. We spend more money on beers and cigarettes than on electricity. Okay, but finally we come to the fiercely discussed costs of renewables. Any guess? So the renewable surcharge is a quarter of the power rate. So I guess it must be a fourth of the 3% of monthly expenses. The renewables surcharge accounts for 
0.7% of our monthly expenditure on average. So much fuss about this small amount. Sometimes we need to get the numbers right to see the full picture. So, Rebecca, what are your main takeaways? Okay, first, I don't understand why the debate about renewables was and maybe still is dominated by a cost debate at the expense of renewables. Why not focus on its climate change benefits or democracy benefits? It's as though this was a new technology that we might or might not use depending on its price, but the survival of humanity kind of depends on clean energy generation. We need to ask, how can renewables help boost the transition of the heating and transport sector, and not how can we slow this down? And second, I think we should talk about the whole bill, not just some parts of it. That means including the avoided costs of environmental damages, the added local value creation, the avoided energy dependency and imports, and so on. So the price of this focus on cost is, first of all, we can't see what's not monetized. Uh, that's the external costs Rebecca's been talking about. And as Stefan Biola put it, people might be willing to pay more for quality. One takeaway for me is people are citizens, not just consumers. And Germany's Renewable Energy Act, the EEG, it did not originally aim to provide the cheapest energy. It pursued a whole bouquet of goals. But perhaps most importantly for this podcast, this cost debate has cost us community energy because it led to auctions where community energy has disappeared. You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local Community Renewables Project, LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is Energy Transition Chronicler, Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. You can follow Craig on Twitter as PPChef. And I am Freitag for Future. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. And the music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor. Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. The Price is Right Losing Horn was provided by Orange Free Sounds. So, Rebecca, who's up with the jokes this week, me or you? It's me. Okay. Okay. You will get a Chuck Norris joke today. <laughs> Just one? Maybe a few more. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay. So, Chuck Norris counted to infinity twice. Ah. Chuck Norris knows Victoria's secret. <laughs> Jack Norris makes onions cry. 
Okay. And last one. Chuck Norris' computer has no backspace button because Chuck Norris doesn't make mistakes. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, see, see you next week, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye-bye.